This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm JP Tasker, and this is the Power in Politics podcast for Monday, October 2nd. On the pod today, Manitoba election polls open tomorrow after a tight race that included some questionable campaign strategies. CBC's Bartley Kivas is there now. And that's not the only election we're watching. MPs elect a new House Speaker tomorrow after scandal forced the last one out. We'll ask former Speaker Jeff Regan about what to expect. And the power panel weighs in. Plus, a delegation of Alberta business leaders arrive in Ottawa to discuss growth goals with the federal government. What's that like amid growing tensions between the governments surrounding Ottawa's draft clean electricity regulations? One visiting energy executive shares his thoughts. And how many former Nazis live in Canada? Jewish organizations are demanding answers. We'll hear from one of them. We begin with the Manitoba election campaign now in its final hours. PC leader Heather Stephenson has just made an appearance where she fielded many questions about her party's campaign tactics and her recent absence from the CBC, from the campaign trail. CBC's Bartley Kivas joins us now from Winnipeg. Bartley, what does she have to say about those negative ads we've been seeing? Well, these ads included ads about the various members of the NDP caucus that are running as candidates, and some of them were quite negative, focusing on their criminal campaigns, or rather criminal charges that were against them in the past. There were also a large ad campaign where the PCs were campaigning for votes on the basis of their opposition to a search of the Prairie Green landfill for the bodies of murdered, missing Indigenous women. Police believe two of them are there. Stephenson was asked about this today, and here's what she had to say. So I have every trust in, in my, my campaign team. I don't get into the weeds in terms of deciding what goes in our advertising and all of these things. We have a very competent and capable campaign team. Trust them. We have been focused as, as candidates out in our individual ridings, listening and hearing from Manitobans. And that is what is reflected in this document that we, uh, that we are releasing today. That document she's talking about was a fully costed platform for the progressive conservatives. They made most of this campaign early on about affordability, tax cuts. They had a week where they spoke mostly about crime, but they changed their messaging seemingly in a defensive manner because they were and are behind in two opinion polls behind the NDP. So these negative campaign ads are seen to be an attempt to, in the words of one political scientist, save the furniture, hold on to existing PC seats, especially in Winnipeg, where there are a lot of swing seats. Heather Stephenson lately, what did she say about her decision to kind of stay off the campaign trail and not really make many announcements in Winnipeg over the last 10 days? She hasn't made an announcement in Winnipeg where most of these swing seats are for 10 days. It wasn't in, in, since uh, September 22nd, that is 10 days ago, and she has appeared before reporters but only accepted reporters' questions in, in Brandon and in Dauphin and in western Manitoba and hasn't been around. She said today when she was asked about this, she said, hey, you know, next time we'll bring the media with me on the road. You guys can come along with us. So making a light of it. But Stephenson in one of those opinion polls has a 61% disapproval rating it is apparent that the party may be trying to just keep her away from voters, which we haven't seen this with a prominent party leader before, uh, Kelvin Gertzen, who is a prominent PC uh, incumbent. He said, you know, politicians don't have to go through the mainstream media anymore. They can go directly to voters. Yeah, and let's talk about some of the other leaders. What did they do on their final day of campaigning? 
Well, the Manitoba Liberals are still trying to get the message across that they can be an alternative to the progressive conservatives and people do not have to vote for the NDP. And the NDP were out speaking about something that they've been speaking about almost entirely, almost a one-note campaign during this entire process here, and that is health care. They're out in front of a hospital again, talking about their plan to reopen three emergency wards in Winnipeg and basically trying to get the message out that they are the ones to fix a health care system that has struggled in the last few years, especially through in the aftermath of the pandemic. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Bartley Kivas in Winnipeg tonight. And David Cochran will be in Winnipeg for special live coverage of tomorrow's election. Tune into Power and Politics beginning at 5 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Central. Coverage will continue throughout the evening. CBC News Winnipeg host Janet Stewart will bring you the latest results and analysis as soon as the polls close. That special begins at 8 p.m. Central. The House of Commons is poised to select a new speaker in the middle of a session. Former Speaker Anthony Rhoda stepped down last week after inviting a Nazi unit soldier to Parliament. So what exactly is the role of the speaker? Oral questions. The Speaker of the House of Commons maintains order and decorum in Parliament. Members, the ones who used to sit way down there and now are over here, I can see you now as well as hear you. They're impartial, ensuring all MPs follow the House rules and procedure. Mr. Speaker, Speaker. Monsieur le Président. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Speeches, questions and debates in the House are directed to the Speaker, but they do not participate, only voting to break a tie. The Speaker also oversees the administration and finances of the House. They manage staff and communicate between the Senate and the Crown. There are ceremonial duties that come with the role, hosting dignitaries and diplomats and representing the House of Commons abroad. The job also comes with some perks, a small apartment in the House of Commons and an official state in Gatineau Park known as the Farm. There have been 37 speakers in the history of the House of Commons. It is uncommon to have a speaker resign. Any MP except ministers and party leaders may stand for election as speaker. So far, eight MPs have put their names forward, while Conservatives, NDP and Greens each have one candidate in the running. Five Liberals are after the job. To become the speaker, they must be elected by other MPs in the House. That election will happen tomorrow. Jeff Regan is the former Speaker of the House of Commons. Welcome to the program. Thank you, JP. So what do you make of this whole Yaroslav Hunka affair, celebrating a 90-year-old veteran of the Nazis in Parliament? What's this done to our reputation? Uh, well, uh, look, I feel uh, very bad about this, and I think lots of people do. Um, it was a serious error, obviously, and I feel bad for my uh, my friend Anthony Rhoda. Um I'm not surprised, of course, at the result in view of what happened. And I think one of the things that uh, members of Parliament will be thinking about uh, as they uh, talk to possible candidates for speaker and vote tomorrow will be uh, that, that they want someone who will listen to ideas they may have on how to avoid something like this happening in the future. We'll get to the speaker's election shortly, but I want to really dig down into this. Do you think there's more that needs to be done? Does there have to be more careful vetting of people who are in the chamber? You know, the Liberal government to this point has said they don't really want to police who the speaker invites to sit in the galleries. But from your perspective, is there something else that could be done to avoid something like this again? Well, first of all, I think the government is right to say that because it shouldn't be the government's role. Remember that in our system, the House of Commons is a confidence house. And the prime minister and cabinet are the government only as long as they have the confidence of the house. 
Therefore, they must report to the House and not the other way around. And therefore, you can't have a speaker reporting to them. Right. They don't they're not they're not the speaker's boss. The speaker has to be impartial and independent. The speaker is the servant of the House and the representative of the House. So that's why it's always been the case that only the speaker decides who is recognized in the House. Now, the, this instance we dealt with that we've seen, um, I think it's less a security issue than it is. It was a there was a political risk, obviously, that wasn't perhaps identified. Um, the list of people who would be in attendance would have been given to the Parliamentary Protective Service. Uh, and it, I'm not sure who they would have shared it with, but that would have been to do things like a criminal record check or are there any arrest warrants, warrants outstanding on the people being invited? Uh, and there's no indication that, that was the case here, but it's not their job to assess people for political risk. And that's where it's up to, it's always been up to the speaker and their staff, they're able to consult people. Uh, and of course, members of parliament may now have their own views on whether there may be different things that should be done or that the speakers should do um, or a different process to ensure that doesn't happen again. Moreover, the House itself, if it wanted to, could make a decision right. about how this would happen in the future. Maybe the speaker needs an issues manager to, to sit and go over the guest list with them. Um, well, Anthony Rhoda has paid the price. He's out for this. And of course, as you mentioned, MPs will choose a new speaker tomorrow. There's a fairly long list of candidates to choose from. Five Liberals are on the list at last count. How do you think this will play out? <laughs> well, that's going to be interesting. Uh, look, I see uh, on the list of people that I've seen, names I've seen, uh, I think they're all friends of mine on both sides of the house. Uh, or all sides of the house, perhaps, but um, I wish them all well. Uh, I'm going to be watching with interest. I must admit, I don't watch the house every day, uh, but I will certainly be paying attention tomorrow because I'm, I'll be interested to see who ends up the winner. Uh, as you know, it's a, it's a process now which is quicker than it used to be. Uh, once upon a time, actually, first of all, it was very quick in the sense that the prime minister would nominate the person the leader of the opposition would second. They would have had a consultation before that. Then the rest of the House would adopt that person, basically a motion making that person the speaker. And then I think it was 1986 that we first had elections, and there used to be a, could be a series of ballots. And if you had a lot of candidates, that could go on all day. Well, thanks to a motion from Michael Chong of the Conservatives back uh, before the 2015 election, we now have a ranked ballot or a preferential ballot. Right. Uh, which makes people people do rank their their choices, and it all the all counting the counting of that uh, is therefore much quicker. I think people will appreciate that. What do you make of the five liberals running for it? Is there a chance that someone from another party gets the spot with so many from the same party in the running? Well, let's keep in mind that the government A does not have a majority, uh, and the Liberal Party, I mean, doesn't have a majority, and therefore um, it's anyone's guess who. who who each member wants to vote for. It's a secret ballot. So it's not a situation where parties can tell their members, you have to vote for so-and-so, and and we're going to watch because they don't get to know how each member votes. Um, Members can have all kinds of discussions about this. So that's one of the reasons I think uh, it's so interesting to see uh, how how it ends up. And uh, I'll be interested to hear the speeches from each of those members seeking to be on the ballot and to see how it goes.
Question period is political theater. I don't have to tell you that. But there's there's one candidate who I th- think has an interesting idea. They're pitching getting rid of the MP's speaking list to make it a little more freewheeling, you know, so the speakers aren't bound by what the prime minister off, uh, office wants or what the opposition house leaders have in mind. Do you think that could work? I think it's worked in the past. On the other hand, so I have mixed feelings about that. And, and that's something I thought about from time to time. And on the one hand, uh, it certainly would add to the influence of the speaker and perhaps, I would hope, uh, cause members to be a little bit, to behave better and to uh, try to win the speaker's favor in a sense. On the other hand, it, it is, it's a house in which the parties play major roles and in our system should play major roles. And particularly for the opposition parties to be able to organize their attack in the house I think is really important. I've been in opposition as well as in government. I've seen both sides of that. And so um, I don't know if it's possible to blend the two somehow or how you ensure that the opposition parties can manage to to organize their attack, so to speak, to organize the way in which they hold the government to account as they see fit. Just very quickly, what do you make of how the MPs behave in the House? There's a lot of talk about improving decorum, but the people that actually sit in that chamber don't seem all that interested in it. Is there is there something they can do, the next speaker, to fix this, or is it a hopeless endeavor? Well, I think a lot of members do, actually, and it's amazing how much noise a few can make. And there are times when there are more than a few making noise, but a lot of the time it's a relatively small number. Um, and... Um, Largely, you know, the House has to, members have to decide for themselves how they're going to behave. This reminds me of the story I was told by my, by my director of communications early on in my time as Speaker. Former Speaker Gilbert Parent was hosting Commonwealth Speakers Conference, I believe it was in Ottawa, and, and he asked the Speaker from India, how do you control more than 500 members? And the Speaker from India said, I don't. Hmm. I control myself. And that, frankly, was the best advice I ever got. Because you can't really control everybody else, or anybody else in a sense. You have to control yourself, and it means as speakers, sometimes you have to try to find ways to lower the temperature in the house. Uh, it's well known that I you know, certainly would bring to the public attention whenever I could members who were repeatedly out of order and heckling. And... Um, I have to admit, it could be frustrating that that didn't seem to have much impact. People didn't seem to care that much when about the fact that that the, the public learned that they had been heckling. Some maybe sometimes when you have a huge majority, that's that's not an issue for you. But um, yeah. all I can say is I, I wish future speakers well in this regard. And I and look, there'll probably be somebody who's way better than me, way better than I was at this, who will succeed uh, in due course. Yeah, we'll see how it plays out. Jeff Regan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. A delegation of over 50 Alberta business leaders arrived in Ottawa today as tensions surrounding the federal government's new clean electricity regulations grow in Alberta. Premier Danielle Smith has launched an aggressive advertising campaign against the federal government's regulations. It's calling on Canadians to oppose the regulations that Premier Smith says would leave Albertans in the dark. The group will meet with ministers, MPs and senior government officials over the next few days to discuss how Alberta can help Canada reach its energy and emissions reductions goals. Alex Porbay is the executive chair of Synovus Energy. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, JP. 
So Alberta Premier Daniel Smith is worried about the government's plan to get the electrical grid clean by 2035. She's launched this campaign against the federal government. Uh, she was on our show last week. I want to play you a clip of what she had to say, and then I'll get you to respond on the other side. Take a listen. We've had to, to uh, launch this campaign so that people understand that what they're proposing is, is just simply not achievable in the time frame that they're proposing. We think uh, it's achievable by 2050. We have many electricity generators who are working towards a, a 2050 target. And so that's what we want to align with the federal government over. But 2035 is just simply not realistic. So does she have it right? Are you worried about the future of natural gas with all this tough talk from Ottawa? Well, I, uh, you know, JP, I have to say with, a, with respect to the clean electricity reg, that, that is a, a really important issue for Albertans. And as I'm sure you know, there are a number of provinces, Alberta and Saskatchewan, prominent among them who are not blessed with significant uh, hydropower or any nuclear power, unlike a lot of the Canadian provinces. And right now we, we obtained the vast majority of our electricity uh, from uh, mostly gas-fired power plants right now. In 2035, I agree with the Premier, that that is an extraordinarily tight time frame, and we will not be able to do it with just renewables. We need something that is much more reliable, and it's going to take time to get that in place. Yeah, and it's not just the electricity grid that Ottawa has its eyes on. They want to slash emissions by 40% nationwide in a few years' time. And to do that, the government wants to put a cap on oil and gas emissions this fall. Can you live with what they're proposing? We certainly cannot live with their initial proposal that is a 42% reduction by 2030. I mean, that really, we're talking about six years from now. There is no way to do that. Uh, right now without significant shut-ins and for an industry that represents 10% of the Canadian economy, I think we have to be very thoughtful. We've always said we can hit a 42% target, but we're, we're not going to be able to do it uh, by 2030. And w the government has, has really uh, high ambitions for decarbonizing. We share that. We want to help decarbonize the Canadian economy. Uh, the oil and gas sector is a big part of it. But we're going we're gonna to need some help to do that. There's a reason why they want to decarbonize, and that's because our emissions are up. And it's largely driven by the oil and gas sector, it seems. You know, upstream emissions are up about 20% since 2005. Is it fair that virtually every other sector is curbing their emissions, and yet your industry seems to be a bit of a laggard? Well, you know, I, I would actually take you back a year, a year and a half ago in the middle of COVID. This federal government was asking uh, very strongly for this industry to increase its oil and gas production in order to meet the the, the need uh, for energy. And I think we all saw uh, what what almost very tragically happened in Western Europe last winter. So we were really responding to that request from government. I you know I, I think every every major oil and gas company that that I talk to uh, in Western Canada. We are all very serious about dropping our emissions. My company has significantly reduced its emissions uh, over the past 15 years, and I, I don't know another company that isn't following in, in the same place. And, you know, there are real implications of reducing the, uh, the production of oil and gas, and the world is going to consume what oil and gas it's going to consume. And if Canada were to stop producing tomorrow, that share would be gladly taken up by Russia, by Saudi Arabia or others. So I think the real goal uh, is for us to work with the province, work with the federal government. And that's really uh, what, what I have been doing and my other 
uh, upstream companies have been doing with uh, our Pathways initiative. But are you worried about regional resentment? Not necessarily Alberta being unhappy, but maybe the rest of the country, because other sectors, other parts of the country, they're doing their bit. And some folks say, you know, the oil and gas industry, they're just not doing enough to help with the national effort. What do you say to that criticism? Well, look, I, I, I think that's a, que- that's a question of, of really lack of knowledge about the challenges. And, you know, I, uh, our Pathways Initiative, which is the sixth largest oil sands producers in, in the country, where we represent about 95% of the oil sands production uh, in the country, we have committed a 22 megaton reduction by 2030. That, that's us, and, and we did that. Uh, on our own initiative because we feel that's the right thing to do. So I, I just think what people don't understand is there there is no low-intensity GHG dial inside an oil and gas processing facility. It requires the investment of tens of billions of dollars. All of those projects have extensive permitting requirements, extensive indigenous uh, 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 requirements that, that we sit down and talk with indigenous communities. Uh, and that, that just takes a, a, a number of years to do so. It's just not possible to snap our fingers and do it, but we're doing it. Uh, our intention is to do it as fast as we possibly can. Yeah, on the issue of investment, you know, West Texas oil's at about $90 a barrel. Western Canadian Select is, is now over about $70 when I checked today. Uh, that means bigger profits for companies like yours. Do you plan to return maybe some of that money to shareholders? Will, will all of it go to shareholders, or will you plow some of that back into technologies that may help you out, like carbon capture and storage? No, I, I think all, all I, I can speak for Sonovas, but I suspect all of, of the other companies are in the, are in the same boat. I mean, you, you obviously have to return some investment to shareholders or they question why they're investing in your industry. But I, I, I think every, every company I talk to, uh, they plan on investing billions of dollars uh, in reducing our emissions. And as I said, we plan on doing that as early as 2030. So those investments are already in place right now. I know my company has already pledged in excess of a billion dollars uh, over the next few years just to uh, reduce our emissions. So you're part of this sizable delegation from from Alberta coming to Ottawa to meet with some big wigs here. I think Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland is on the list. What are you hoping to get out of this? Oh, I, I, you know, I, I think the important thing is, is it's not just energy executives here. We have ag executives, high-tech executives, and, you know, some like me uh, have had the benefit of spending a lot of their career in Ottawa, and others have, have really never been to Ottawa. This is really about introducing uh, Ottawa uh, to the entire range of Alberta industries. And, you know, this, the one thing I think a lot of people realize about this world is it needs more Canada, it needs more minerals, it needs more energy, it needs more ag products, fertilizer, uh, and, and Alberta is a huge part of that and can be a bigger part of that. And it's really uh, just to uh, really, really uh, uh, create that communication, build those relationships, and really, uh, really help, I think, people in Ottawa appreciate you know, what Alberta can do uh, in helping the country's economy going forward. Okay, we'll keep our eye on it. Thank you so much. Alex Porbet is the executive chair of Synovus Energy. Thanks, JP. When it comes to remembering the victims, we, we've done a lot. But when it comes to remembering the murderers, we've done very little. And, and the victors were 
total uh, the victims were totally innocent uh if we're really going to learn from the past we have to find the lessons that can be learned from what the murderers did and and how they escaped justice uh and and right now we're not able to fully learn that lesson because of the failure to disclose the records some jewish groups are calling for the federal government to disclose more information about alleged nazis that entered canada after the second world war Specifically, they want redacted files that are related to the Deschen Commission report that was done decades ago. This push comes after Parliament honoured a man who was revealed to have fought for a Nazi unit. For more on this, I am joined by Michael Levitt. He is the President and CEO of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Centre for Holocaust Studies. Welcome back to the show, sir. Thank you, JP. So the president, I don't know if you saw this over the weekend, but the president of the Ukrainian National Federation of Canada has defended Yaroslav Hunka, saying he was really fighting for Ukrainian independence. What do you say to arguments like that? I say that those that are going to put forward apologist arguments uh, are really not to be given a public platform. And we've seen statements from the Ukrainian Canadian Congress, which have been very sympathetic and understanding to the pain that was caused the Jewish community. So to see voices like this speaking out and being given, you know, print space, it's a little disappointing. Yeah, the Deschen Commission, let's take it back to one thing I was focused on over the weekend. I filed on this last night for the National. I think this is really quite interesting. The Deschen Commission studied the issue of war criminals in the 1980s. It had two parts to its report. One was public, the other was kept confidential. So we don't really have a list of ex-Nazis in Canada as a result of all this secrecy. Why do you think the government should release these documents now? The expression sunlight is the best disinfectant could not be more relevant than to this situation. If ever there was an issue in Canadian history and Canadian policy that required disinfecting, it's our shameful record as it exists with covering up Nazi war criminals immigration to Canada during the 40s and 50s. It's long overdue, JP. Do you have any insight into why the names were kept secret? Why were these alleged Nazis protected by the government? This is one of the things that uh, the uh, Duchesne Commission and the Rodell Report that was part of that looked into. Um, why were the decisions made? Who made them? Uh, and, and no, we, we want to know that. I, I think these were likely very hot potato issues um, back in the time. Uh, and the, the only way that we're going to get the kind of answers that, believe me, you and I are both looking for, the Jewish community is looking for, Holocaust survivors and so many others, is for these to be, uh, as for the unredacted, undetected files to be, to be opened. Have you heard from the government on this? Is there any openness to revisiting the Deschen Commission's report? You know, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh was out yesterday. He was very clear about this. He thinks there should be more transparency. Have they been in touch with you about this? No, we haven't spoken to them yet on this issue. I, I did see that um, one of the ministers, I think uh, Minister Miller, did make some comments uh, outside of QP the other day. So listen, they, they're hearing loud and clear from multiple voices in the Jewish community and many others um, from both you know, historians and policy people that this really has to be the next step. There's been harm caused to the Jewish community um, and to so many others, to, uh, to the victims of the Nazis and also to Canadian veterans, many of whom sacrificed so much to go over and defend against the Nazis in World War II. For all of them, we need once and for all to address the harm caused. The way to begin that healing, 
the way to advance that type of healing is to come to terms with a difficult past. These are going to be difficult files to read. It's not going to be easy. I'm sure it's going to be an embarrassment for, you know, some people in government. And again, we're not just talking about the government now. We're talking about successive governments dating back decades and decades and generations. But this is a stain on Canada and it needs to be come to terms with and it needs to be opened up. So I just want to clarify. So you're, you're a former Liberal MP. You know a lot of the people around the Prime Minister. Has anyone from the PMO or anyone around the Prime Minister been in touch with you after the Yaroslav Hunka event? Has anyone reached out to the friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center? Yeah, we've, we've had some people reach out to express sympathy for what happened, but nothing in terms of any kind of detail about how to advance this file moving forward. And that's what we want to see. We want to see um, really a, a deep dive into how they can begin to, again, open up the files. Um, there's so much information that needs to be looked at. We want to be part of that process. We want to assist. We want to be able to work with the government alongside organizations like B'nai B'rith. Uh, I saw um, former special envoy Erwin Kotler had made a similar call for the release of the data and, and so many more people. This is the time to do it. We have a history in Canada of not dealing with the difficult issues in our past. This is one of those difficult issues. And uh, we, you know, the only way that we're going to move beyond it is to have a full accounting and uh, be able to deal with probably some of the difficult truths. But you know what? We're, we're resilient. We're a resilient country. And we'll come out the other side of this stronger. Yeah, I mean, I just keep thinking this was a deeply embarrassing incident, deeply offensive to so many people in this country, a country that bravely fought against the Nazi war machine. You know, how do you what do you hope comes from this? What can we learn from this mishap? Well, JP, you're, you're right. But it wasn't just in Canada that the pain of this situation was felt. Um, something that Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center has really touched on on all of our communications in the aftermath of this incident was the profound situation and embarrassment and jeopardy that this has caused our ally Ukraine uh, to experience in the midst of their battle, the, this illegal and immoral war from Vladimir Putin from Russia. This has really compromised and created a propaganda win for the Russians. So what we don't want to see coming out of this situation is any diminishment of the resolve in Canada um, within the Jewish community for sure. And I had an opportunity to be on the Polish border of Ukraine back in March of last year, assisting uh, refugees fleeing over into Poland. We don't want to see the uh, alliance with Ukraine diminished one bit. That should not be the outcome for this. In fact, we know that uh, Vladimir Zelensky uh, and the Ukrainians, really, they're, they're standing up for democracy, not just for Ukraine, but really for all of us, because we can't see Russia uh, coming out of this as the victors. Right. OK, that's great. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Michael Levitt, president and CEO of the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies. Manitobans head to the polls tomorrow. One more day, everyone. One more day to Election Day. We are asking for your support so that we can change the government and fix health care in Manitoba. We will create bigger paychecks by lowering income taxes. Every single candidate for running for the Manitoba Liberals is doing it because we know the other parties will never deliver. No matter who you plan to vote for in this year's election, please do get out and cast your ballot.
Over the weekend, the progressive conservatives posted, then quickly pulled this ad on social media that encouraged people to vote their conscience in private. Stand firm and vote how you feel, not how others say you should. Because during an election, it's okay to disagree on issues without the fear of being judged. So vote like no one is watching. It's time to bring in the power panel. Vandana Cutter is a political consultant and former advisor to Prime Minister Trudeau. Amanda Galbraith, a principal at Navigator. Francoise Boivin is a former NDP MP and political commentator. And Rob Russo is the former CBC Parliamentary Bureau Chief. There's lots of formers in those titles, but that means we're all, <laughs> we're all, we're all very behind us. Yeah. <laughs> you have a lot of insight into these things. Rob, what do you make of that campaign ad? I mean, it was a little... Uh, some people are raising questions about it, saying it was a little cringy and that it might be racially tinged. What's your take on it? Well, usually when you see this kind of ad, when you're in effect suggesting that your own supporters might be embarrassed about voting for you, it suggests that you don't have a motivated base of voters uh, and that uh, you need to do what you can to encourage them to come out to vote. Uh, and at this stage of a campaign, if you don't have a motivated base, uh, it, it has the whiff of desperation about uh, about it. Now, look, it, it is uh, a change election. Uh, the Conservatives have been in power now for quite some time. Uh, and after this kind of time, it, it's usually harder to, to motivate your base. But um, that kind of appeal, basically saying, um, you know, uh, not quite, but uh, suggesting you can put a paper bag over your head and, and, and vote anyway, mm -hmm. Uh, that, that has the whiff of desperation. Vandana, you know, it says in the ad, vote how you feel, not how others say you should. And this, of course, is after the party put up a billboard uh, saying, kind of being proud of the fact that they did not spend the money to search a Winnipeg dump to find the bodies of potentially two Indigenous women. Uh, what do you make of their strategy here? Well, it tells me that what they're failing to do is create a compelling narrative as to the voters as to why they should be voting for their party. And this is very common for a lot of tired governments. Uh, so what they're doing, they're appealing to, it looks like their their base, uh, in this case, I would say the more further right portion of their base, uh, who would think about things like, oh, I can't say anything anymore. Therefore, I can't I can't voice my opinion. And therefore, this ad was is a way to secure what they have here. But what this really tells me is a lot about their internals. and It's probably not looking very good. So. They're trying to figure out how can they best get who they know can come out, um, maybe try to appeal to people who may be on the more progressive side of their party, but would see this as something cringy, um, you know, to even just put out an ad that, you know, focuses on the fact that there are potentially women missing in this in this area and is failing to to do anything about it. I mean, it, it says a lot about this government, but I think it also says that they just don't have a broader narrative to 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 appeal to voters for. Amanda, you've run a lot of campaigns before. What do you make of the fact that we really haven't seen Heather Stephenson in the media for the last 10 days? She's kind of been missing in action up until today. We haven't heard her speak to reporters and take questions. Is that a sign that she's maybe fearful of what the result will be, or is it she's a liability for the party? Uh, it can be many things. It could be there's a view of a liability. It could be there's a view, like often that's a strategy. I'm not saying that's the case here. But with front runners, you'll often find them touring very strange areas of the province that uh, media can't find them or doing, you know, events with supporters or whatever. So that is one strategy. I don't think that's the case here. Um, my guess is they're concerned about what an engagement with the media would entail. They don't see a lot of benefit to it. And that's not unusual, I think, on frankly, with conservative campaigns. Um, I think they but, you know, candidly, if you're putting out an ad like 
boat like no one is watching. I mean, no one wants to go on a date with someone. It's like, hey, just put a paper bag over your head and don't tell anyone we're together. Like that just tells you, I think, where things are at. Um, so <laughs> my guess is they're just trying to keep what they have together without upsetting the apple cart any further. And, uh, you know, it's probably not going to be a good result for them tomorrow. Francoise, what do you make of that ad? And what do you make of the fact we haven't really seen Heather Stephenson all that much in this campaign? Well, not that surprised since she is not very popular. Every every survey I, I, I looked from, from Quebec, uh, she's at uh, the bottom of all the premiers. So uh, I'm not that surprised. At the same time, it's sending voters uh, a message loud and clear. We're, we're also, as a party, not very fond of our leader. Otherwise, we would parade her pretty much everywhere. As for the, uh, the, the publicity, I mean, I remember ex-colleagues... Uh, when I ran to be an MP and got elected as an MP, they used to say, you know, negative publicity works and so on and so forth. But voting with a bag on your head usually doesn't doesn't really work. So, again, seeing it from Quebec, I'm thinking, what what the hell is wrong with the conservatives in, 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 in Manitoba? Because it's almost as if they feel defeated all already and uh, that is not enticing voters to come and, and and vote unless they're trying to get some type of sympathy you know reverse psychology I just can't get it Rob you know polls suggest Wab canoe is doing quite well I mean the last polls I was looking at from 338 Canada which is an aggregator so it's not just one firm in particular but it has about a three-point spread between the PCs and the NDP so Wab canoe doing reasonably well maybe going to be the next premier of this province based on the party's strength in Winnipeg. It's quite substantial, isn't it, that we could have our first First Nations premier tomorrow. What do you make of that? Uh, well, it, it would be historic and it would put tremendous pressure on, on Mr. Canoe. He, he would be under pressure uh, not just to represent all Indigenous uh, uh, or First Nations people in the province of Manitoba, but uh, I, I think he said that he would also be under pressure to show that he's a a premier for all of the people. Look, I think no matter what happens, that, that it's it's important to note that uh, whoever gets elected premier, uh, we don't elect a lot of um, women first ministers in Canada. Outside of the territories, it's 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 an unusual event that a woman actually gets elected as opposed to comes into the job as party leader. Uh, so so that that would be something that uh, would. Uh, I think be a welcome trend, but the the nation the notion of having a first nations premier for the first time uh, it would be historic uh, and um, it it certainly isn't part of the calls to to action of uh, of the truth and reconciliation commission, but I think that it would go a long way i think towards showing uh, uh, people that this is possible in Canada now it's not an impossibility uh, and it and it's and it shouldn't even be an improbability in a province where 18% of the people are from First Nations. Vandana, you know, there's something to be said for the fact that he's a first First Nations, potentially, uh, to win tomorrow. But also, he has to really juggle the First Nations agenda, but also the agenda for the wider province. And there was actually some criticism this morning from some folks. There was an article on our website about how Indigenous issues have not really played a focus in this campaign. Neither party, neither of the main parties really want to talk about it. Do you think that Wab Canoe is kind of trying to stay away from those issues? No, I think 
what happens to a lot of racialized individuals, uh, including what happened to Mr. Canoe, is that he will feel pressure and people will judge him more harshly than they would for Caucasian counterparts. Um, if he does speak even a little bit about Indigenous issues, it's very easy for someone to say, oh, like this is all he cares about. So what he's trying to do is appeal to a broad base. That being said, he has been at events and really showcased and focusing on Indigenous issues. Um, he had a great uh, event in Orange at uh, Truth and Reconciliation Day. He's been he has been having these conversations, but so he also wants to pre appeal to broader electorate. And let's be honest, for a lot of people, especially in Manitoba, there is going to be a bias, conscious or unconscious. So he wants to say, you can trust me. I care about health care. I care about affordability. I care about education. I do care about this as well, but I care about everyone's issues. And I think what's really important that when he does and if he does become the premier, which, yes, would be historical and long overdue, you know, to bring that equity lens to so many places in terms of how to govern would be really helpful for the province overall. Amanda, it's such a delicate issue. You know, how do you think how do you think the PCs have handled going up against a First Nations candidate like Wab Canoe? I think obviously we've seen, you know, a struggle there. Uh, and certainly I think some of the the positioning, particularly around the search for the the two um, women, uh, I found incredibly distasteful to put it mildly. Um, so I think, you know, they probably tried to, other than sort of shadow boxing with some of those issues, um, they have tried to, to a certain extent, ignore it directly from the leader, but perhaps hint at it in other ways, which, you know, I think that may be a little bit of what the uh, hold your nose and vote or vote in secret or vote your contract, whatever the heck that is, right? So I think um, it can be challenging. I mean, Mr. Canoe gave a, a very remarkable speech um, a couple of months ago, kind of ahead of the real heat of this campaign about um, his indigeneity and, you know, how that plays into the campaign and him as a leader. And I would encourage folks to to listen to that because I think it's, it's well worth your time. Yeah, Francoise, you know, he's been quite upfront about that he's had past troubles, that some things you mm -hmm. know, might be a little problematic, voters might be a little uncomfortable with it, but he owned it, right? He really was out front about it as soon as the election campaign began. How do you think Wab Canoe has run this campaign? I think he did a, a, a great job. And uh, I, I think a lot, of, it's surprising sometimes when you get so personal with some advertisement, sometimes it blows back right in the face of those who, who published uh, those uh, those publicity. Uh, because uh, if if my facts are, are correct, and you'll correct me if it, they're not, he's been elected before and, and, and with this as a background. So it, it's kind of cheap shot. And, and Canadians everywhere in every provinces do not like cheap shot. And 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 uh, he, he stayed on top of the uh, of these issues. He never shied away. And uh, I think he's he's showing that he's uh, 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 premier's uh, material. I want to shift to the election that's happening in Ottawa tomorrow, that of the new House Speaker Anthony Rhoda. There are eight candidates replacing Anthony Rota. There are eight candidates in the running, including five Liberals, one Conservative, one New Democrat, and the Green Party co-leader Elizabeth May herself. Uh, what do you make of the field of candidates, guys, and do you think that there's a chance we could have an opposition MP in here? Rob, we'll start with you. Well, I think that uh, uh, Chris Donfermont probably had um, a decent shot um, uh, up until last week when he, um, as far as Liberals are concerned, uh, put himself out of the running on a ruling he made uh, over Melissa Lanceman calling Karina Gould disgraceful um, in, uh, in, in the wake of what happened with Anthony Rhoda. 
I, I, I don't know that there was ever a chance for a Conservative MP to be Speaker, but I think that that ruling uh, probably soured his chances. Um, you know, you never know on a, on a ranked ballot, uh, but I, I think if you were going to ask me to handicap it right now, Alexander Mendez would probably be the favourite. The Liberals still have 158 seats, right. the most votes. She, uh, But when you look at it, it's who is least defensive? Uh, that That's the question you got to ask with these things. And, and number two, who would want it? Uh, I mean, uh, Ken Hardy put it uh, very well to, to, to CP when uh, a reporter from Canadian Press asked him if he was interested. And, and he looked at the, the reporter and said, do you not like me? Did I did I do something? To, like, why would you even think of me for this job? Uh, although it does come with a lovely you get a nice uh, house. house. You get an estate. Nice um, house. Got no hills. Uh, almost an apartment. A, a big raise on your MP's salary. Um, but you're not respected. Uh, you're not listened to. You're now openly mocked uh, right. by all sides, it seems. Uh, and and so there, there can't be a lot of on-the-job satisfaction. Vandana, I really do have not much time. So let's uh, let me get your thoughts quickly on this. There's five <laughs> liberals running. Is there a chance that this puts an opposition MP in the job? Uh, no, I think I think uh, liberals rallied behind a liberal at some point, uh, no matter what it is. That's, who, that's what they'll be focused on. I think Rob is 100 percent right. I think anyone who might have given a nod to Utrecht would have uh, now changed their mind. And I think it'll be interesting to see to see Alexandra as I think is the first woman speaker as well as Greg Fergus as the first potentially black speaker. And those are historical options that should be interesting to consider. Jean, Jean Sauvé was first uh, first woman. Jean yes. Sauvé in the 1980s. Ah, OK, good. Wasn't sure, but yes, thank you for correcting that. Yeah. Amanda, really quickly, what do you think of the possibility of Chris Dontremont being in that chair? You'd have to go against his own party, who sometimes <laughs> there's some uh, bad behavior over on that side of the house. Yeah, I think there's always examples of speakers who sort of put on their nonpartisan hat when they do this work, and there's been lots of credible ones to do it. I don't think, frankly, Dontremont is going to get it, given yeah. you know, Liberals organizing tomorrow. Um, I know it's ranked ballot, so we'll see, but um, that's a long shot for him. But if the Liberals don't manage to coordinate their ranked ballots and secret ballots in a way that works, uh, we may be surprised. Yeah, that could be quite interesting. Thank you to the power panel, Vandana Cutter, Amanda Galbraith, Francoise Boivin, and Rob Russo. Thank you so much for joining us on Power and Politics. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm JP Tasker. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.